I want to dive right into our passage, and so if you would take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter that we've been looking at, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, the text that has been assigned to me is verses 22 to 25, and as always, I want to begin by reading the passage, and we will then spend our time working through the text. 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 22, and the title of this message is The Word of God for Exiles. The Word of God reads, beginning in verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. In these verses, the Apostle Peter underscores the central importance of the ministry of the Word of God in our lives. As we've been focusing upon the fact that as believers we are exiles, which means we, our citizenship is in heaven, and we belong to another realm. We do not belong to this world. We are in the world, but not of the world. We have been delivered from this evil world system, and we are now in Christ. And because we no longer belong to this realm, we need the truth that comes from another realm, not from this world, but from the world of glory and the wor world of heaven. And that is what Peter is emphasizing here, the Word of God to exiles. We need a Word, the Word that is an out-of-this-world truth. And so, let me begin by saying that no one can be saved apart from the Word of God, and no one can be sanctified apart from the Word of God. In other words, no one can enter into the kingdom of God apart from the Word of God. It is that essential. And no one can advance in the kingdom of God and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from the Word of God. The central theme in these verses is obviously the Word of God. And if you would let your eye just go back down through these verses that I've just read, the Word of God is identified in verse 22 as the truth, which is a synonymous expression for the Word of God. It is the truth. In verse 23, it is identified as the Word of God, meaning the Word that has come down from God. It is the Word that has come down from the throne of grace. It has been breathed out of His mouth. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In verse 25, it is identified as the Word of the Lord, and in verse 25, it is also identified as the Word, 
And in chapter 2, verse 2, it's identified again as the Word. It is never identified as a word, as if the Bible is one of many cacophony of voices that are speaking the truth. There is only one source of truth, and that is the written Word of God. And so, this repetition in these verses underscores how important the Word is in your life and in my life. Your Christian life will not grow one iota beyond your intake of the Word of God. If there is little intake of the Word of God in your life, there will be a low ceiling over your head, and it will stunt your spiritual growth. But as you are inundated with the Word of God, it is God's growth, growth food that stimulates our spiritual growth. That is what he will say in chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes, long for the, sincere, the, the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And so we want to look at these verses and give careful thought as to the centrality of the Word of God and the life of any healthy believer. And there's four words that I want to set in front of you as we walk through this passage that will define and identify the Word of God. And the first is for verse 22 is the word authoritative. The Word of God is the authoritative Word. He begins in verse 2 by saying, since you have in obedience to the truth. Stop there. As I said earlier, the truth is synonymous with the Word of God. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2.15, it is referred to as the Word of truth. And when he says, since you have in obedience to the truth, that points back to their conversion. It points back to the time when they entered into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and it was marked by obedience to the truth. You see, the gospel comes to us in the Word of God as a free offer and as an invitation, but it is more than that. It is actually an imperative command. The gospel commands us to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel commands us to enter through the narrow gate. And saving faith at that moment was a decisive step of obedience to the command of the truth, the command of the gospel. And in that moment, we repented and believed in Christ just as the gospel demands of us. Now, when he says the truth, the word truth simply means reality. It is the reality of what something is. It is the reality of what God says something is. And we live in a world in which there are all kinds of truth claims, and people do surveys, and they want to poll people and do opinion polls and try to see who has uh, the most uh, clout on a particular issue, but there's only one source of the truth, and that is with God, who is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Word of God is the Word of truth. The church is to be the pillar and support of the truth. And so when he says obedience to the truth, he is referring to obedience to the gospel itself that is the truth. The truth is man is whatever God says man is. Gender is whatever God says gender is. Marriage is whatever God says marriage is. The family is whatever God says the family is. Sin is whatever God says sin is. Salvation is whatever God says salvation is. The judgment is whatever God says the judgment is. Heaven and hell is whatever God says heaven and hell is. One ounce of what God has to say is worth more than 10 million pounds of what man has to say. And so, since in obedience to the truth, all Christians are marked and described as obedient. In fact, if you look earlier in verse 14, he identifies the elect of God. He identifies those who, are, who were foreknown from before the foundation of the world as obedient children. There is no such thing as a disobedient Christian. Now, we still commit individual acts of disobedience, so it is not referring to perfectionism, but we're on a new path headed in a new direction, and we have a new heart and a new mind and a new disposition and a new will that has been given to us by God in the new birth. And so, we now are marked on the path of obedience to the will of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. It's not the profession of Christ that gets you into heaven. It is the possession of Christ that gets you into heaven. Many profess, but do not possess. And the one who possesses Christ is marked by obedience to the Word of God, to the Word of truth. And in that moment of conversion, he goes on to say that you purified your souls. You cleansed your souls. This is a reference to repentance and uh, turning away from a life pursuit of sin. And at the moment of the new birth, at the moment of your conversion, you were completely turned around and no longer now pursuing sin. Now you are headed in the opposite direction and you have purified your souls. This refers to the conviction of sin. It refers to a brokenness over sin. It refers to now a renouncing of sin and a repudiation of sin. It refers to a turning away from a life pursuit of sin. That, that is why it is impossible to be a homosexual Christian. If you are a Christian, you have purified your soul and you have repented of your previous sin, and you now are going in a totally different direction. And with union with Christ, the ruling power of sin that once dominated our lives, that ruling power has been crushed, 
and it has been broken at the moment of conversion, and you now have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are no longer under the tyranny of sin that you once were, a slave of sin. You now have a new master, and you now pursue righteousness. And so he goes on to say in verse 22, he he says, since you have in obedience to the truth, that's true of every Christian, since in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. That is to say, as you now love God and as you now love Christ, you now love the bride of Christ and you love your new brothers and your new sisters in Christ, and you have more in common with them many times than even your own natural family. There is now a a kindred spirit. There is now a close connection that you have as you are welded into the body of Christ, and you are connected to your other brothers and sisters, and, and you love them. Out in the world, you may be persecuted. Out in the world, you may be opposed. Out in the world, you may be hammered, but when you come into the fellowship of the church, there is a fellowship that is sweet and it is marked by love. And so the command he now gives is at the end of verse 22, we now come to the main verb of this sentence, love one another from the heart. And we are commanded now to show unconditional affection and Uh, sacrificial love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and it must arise from a heart, a heart that that is a new heart, the result of regeneration. But the point that I want to make with you in verse 22 is the word authoritative, that the Word of God possesses the right to rule our lives. The Word of God possesses the right to bind our conscience. The Word of God has the right to demand and command of our life and to direct us into the path that God has chosen for us. Every commandment of God when God says to do this is leading us into the very center of the abundant life that is in Christ. And every command that says, do not do something, God is saying, do not harm yourself. It will bring about destruction. So the first thing that we see about the Word of God for exiles is that it is an authoritative Word. It's not presenting us with options. It's not giving us suggestions. It's not giving us preferences. It is issuing us commands from our sovereign God in heaven, and every true child of God is under the lordship of Jesus Christ and the rule of God's Word. Second, as we come to verse 23, not only is the Word of God authoritative, but second, it is living. You'll note in verse 23, he goes on to say, "'For you have been born again.'" Uh, The first word is for, which introduces an explanation. So, verse 23 is an explanation, excuse me, an explanation of verse 22. Here is why you are obedient children 
And as you now come under the authority of the Word of God, here is why this is true of every Christian. Verse 23, for, here's the explanation, you have been born again. The new birth is the life of God in the soul of a man. The new birth puts life into you. You come alive unto God. Certain passages describe it as a spiritual resurrection, that you were dead in the grave of sin. And at the moment of regeneration, in that instant, like a lightning bolt out of heaven that struck your heart, and in that split second, you came alive unto God, and you were born again. Jesus said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And so, the reason why we are obedient children, as that describes the general flow of our lives, is because we have been born again. The new birth comes about when the Word of God, which is living, is implanted into the womb of the heart, and God the Holy Spirit impregnates the soul. And there is now life created within the dead womb of the heart as the seed of the Word is planted in us, and in that seed is the, the germ of life. And as the living Word is placed into a spiritually dead heart, and the Spirit of God acts upon it, there is life that comes from the seed of the Word that is deposited in the heart. He's already talked about the new birth in verse 3 of chapter 1 when he said, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again.'" Theologians refer to this as a monergistic regeneration, meaning there's only one active agent, and that is God who acts upon the spiritually dead heart. We are passive. God alone is active in the miracle of the new birth. And he says the new birth is brought about, he says in verse 23, not of seed which is perishable. Now, when he says seed that is perishable. The word perishable means dying, fading away, shriveling up, withering. The seed that is perishable is any message that comes from man that would be preached by man, taught by man, or read by man. It is a perishable message, and it produces further death in the life of the one who receives it. That would include secular humanism, worldly wisdom, false religion, social gospel, woke philosophy, godless liberalism, Christianity without the virgin birth, without the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection, and the present ascension of Christ. That is the seed which is perishable, and that is what you will hear out on the streets, 
And that is what you will hear probably in most churches in this town. You will hear the perishable seed of man's wisdom and worldly thinking implanted, sown into the hearts of people, and a dead message only further instills death in the heart. But Peter goes on to say that the new birth comes about by the imperishable seed, that is, the living and enduring Word of God. The word imperishable means that that it endures. It's alive, and it's ongoing. It it, it never weakens. It never wilts. It it never fades away. It, it, It is an imperishable seed, and when it is planted in the heart of a person, it actually has life in it. It has the germ of life in that seed. And when the preacher sows that seed, when the parent sows that seed into a child, it is there, and when the Spirit of God acts upon it, there is the germination of of life. No other message will bring eternal life to a spiritually dead soul other than this imperishable seed. It, It never weakens. It is never depleted. Many times I've stepped into this pulpit, and I've been weak, but this book has never been weak. And as soon as I open this book, the the life of this book just surges through my own heart and soul, and it quickens me, and it makes me alive because there is life in this book. Notice he says, that is through the living and enduring Word of God. I want to emphasize this word, living. This book is alive. This book has life in it. Every other book in the world is a dead book. There is only one living book, and that is the Word of God. And really, you have need of other books only to help you understand the book, this book, because this book alone is is alive. And when this book goes forth and the Spirit of God accompanies it, it, it brings forth life. Martin Luther said, this book is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It, it lays hold of me. Surely you've seen this in your own life. Listen, I've read other books. This book reads me. I mean, this book is alive. It has life. This book alone identifies the real issues of life. Only this book can tell me who I am and why I'm here and where I came from and how I'm to live and what is the purpose of my life and what is death and what lies on the other side of death and who is God and how may I know God? No other book in the world can give me the answers to these most important questions other than this book. And when this book is sown into my life as it was when I was 17 years old as a teenager, I suddenly came alive unto God and entered into a relationship with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because This book is a living book, therefore it speaks to every person on the planet. 
There, there is no person alive anywhere on planet earth, but that this book speaks exactly to them, exactly where they are. It matters not what their age is. It matters not what their generation is. It matters not what nation they live in or what continent they are on. This book is so alive, it directly addresses every person on planet earth when this book is brought to them. It is a living book. James 1 verse 18 says, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth. It is the Word of God that God uses to bring about regeneration. No one will ever be born again until this book is planted in their mind and in their heart and in that order. First the written Word, then the power of the Holy Spirit to, to cause that living Word to have life in that person, and they come alive. But there's a third word that I want you to see, not only authoritative and not only living, but third, the word enduring. And you see that at the end of verse 23. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. Uh, your translation may read abides. Uh, it's much better translated as enduring. The verb means stays or remains from one generation to the next, from one age to the next. It never changes. It is always enduring. Listen, society changes, culture changes, morals are changing by the moment, genders appear to be changing for the mentally ill, but the Word of God never changes. Right is forever right. Wrong is forever wrong. The way of salvation has never changed from Genesis 3 verse 15 to the end of the age. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, whether it is the Old Testament, whether it is the New Testament, nothing changes in the Bible. There are no additional addendums that need to be added. There's no editing that needs to be made. It doesn't need to be brought up to date. It is the most contemporary book that there has ever been in the, in, in the history of the world. Some pastors say, well, we want to have a contemporary worship service. Great, then preach the Bible. The Bible is the most contemporary book that has ever been written. Psalm 119, verse 89, forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. It's nailed down in heaven. It is immovable. The truth is the truth. It is etched in stone in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 160, every one of, of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. It has a long shelf life. There's no expiration date to the Word of God. It endures forever. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 35, 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There's coming a time in the future when this entire planet is going to be melted down by fire. And there's coming a time when all of the heavens and the the outer space and all the planets are going to be melted down by fire, 2 Peter 3. Heaven and earth will pass away, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But Jesus said, my words will never pass away. They, They will never be replaced with an alternate form of of truth. It is forever the same. And so, to show that this is the old truth, in verse 24, he actually now reaches back to the Old Testament, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. And he does so to show that what he is teaching here in the New Testament is in perfect alignment with the Old Testament, that there's only one body of truth, that there is this perfect continuity here at this point from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And he says, for all flesh is like grass. And flesh here refers to human flesh and human life and human ideologies. And he says it's it's like grass. It, It appears for a short time and has some passing beauty to it, but it's only brief and momentary. He says, all flesh, human flesh, is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. There are some crowning achievements by man. There there is some, some, some good that does come from certain discoveries and certain advancements. But he says this, the grass withers. That word, it means it dries up, it, it dies, and the flower falls off. It, it just collapses to the ground. That, that is so representative of every human philosophy and every worldly ideology and, and every apostate religion and all liberalism and agnosticism and, and, and atheism. It, 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 it just sprouts up for the moment, and it dies off by the time the noonday sun has arisen in the sky. It's worth nothing. It only breeds death. But he says in verse 25, but, by stark contrast, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Throughout all eternity future, God's Word is forever God's Word. It is based upon God's own eternality and God's own immutability. Malachi 3 verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not, and God's Word changes not. And so when we put our confidence in the Word of God is in a message that will never, never be changed. What you learned in your teenage years what you studied in your 20s, what you taught your kids in your 30s, what you passed on to your grandchildren in their 50s, in your 50s and in your 60s, is what you're going to be clinging to on your deathbed in your 70s and your 80s. The message endures. It outlives you. It outlives every generation. Nations come and go. Rulers are raised up and taken off the throne but the Word of God is the one constant in this world 
that never changes and is not perishing. You and I are perishing. Society is unraveling like a cheap sweater. Everything around us is is imploding. But the Word of God endures from age to age, from generation to generation. And so this brings us to the end of verse 25. And we've seen that the Word is authoritative. It has the right to rule and command our lives. We have seen that it is living, that it possesses life, and that it imparts life. We have seen that it endures, that it remains the same forever. And the last thing at the end of verse 25, we see that the Word is preached. He says, and this is the Word which was preached to you. Of all the ways that the Word of God goes forth, by reading the Word, by someone witnessing to you one-on-one, by coming into a church service and hearing the Word sung, by various means through a Christian counselor, the very, from a parent to a child, there is one primary means of grace that surpasses all other means of grace, and that is the preaching of the Word of God. It is God's chosen means by which His Word is to go forth. It is to be heralded. It is to be proclaimed. It it is to be preached. And that is God's chosen means. I'm just reminding myself as I'm saying this that Martin Lloyd-Jones, who stood in this very pulpit, he was the co-pastor with G. Campbell Morgan for a number of years until G. Campbell Morgan retired and Martin Lloyd-Jones assumed the sole pastorate lead role in, in this church. And people were flooding out of London after World War II. In fact, the difference between G. Campbell Morgan and Lloyd-Jones, it was said that when the Germans were bombing London here, that G. Campbell Morgan would dismiss the service. But Martin Lloyd-Jones would just keep on preaching through the air raids. And he was so focused upon preaching. And so as people were leaving London, they were saying to Martin Lloyd-Jones, we've got to have some new strategies. If we're going to keep people in this church, we, we need new strategies to, to hold what we have and to, to bring others in. Well, as you recall, Lloyd-Jones had been a physician in this town, a very eminent young physician. Um, he, he was the assistant to Sir Thomas Horder, who was the physician to the King of England. And so, Lloyd-Jones had a very prominent position in the medical community until God called him to preach. And so, as he became the pastor of this church, Lloyd-Jones had all kinds of the church members here at this church telling him, we need some more strategies, we need new strategies. And Lloyd-Jones said to the members of this church, when I was a physician, I never let the patient write the prescription. (laughs) And neither will I let you begin to write the prescription for this church. And so, last night we met in here on a Friday night, and it brought back memories of the Friday night Bible study that Lloyd-Jones had in this very 
uh, sanctuary on Friday nights as he preached verse by verse through, through Romans for over a decade. And I was reminded that that Friday night study, it actually began behind this wall back in Fellowship Hall. It was a Q&A with Lloyd-Jones, and you could ask him any question. And it became apparent to Lloyd-Jones that his people had been sitting under a lot of devotional preaching but lacked theological structure. They lacked sound doctrine. And so he taught through an entire systematic theology behind this wall back in Fellowship Hall. And the crowds began to grow on Friday night until it became so large that Lloyd-Jones had to move out of Fellowship Hall on Friday night and move in here into the sanctuary, and he began preaching through Romans, and the crowds grew and grew and grew, the total opposite of what those in the church were telling him, that his preaching would be the death blow to the church. Actually, it was the preaching of the Word of God, especially through Romans, that rebuilt this church and caused it to be one of the most historic churches in, in all of the world. And I think you can trace back to this pulpit right here, the Reformed resurgence in our day as it came across the Atlantic and James Montgomery Boyce and then R.C. Sproul took it to the masses. It all started right here, this pulpit, a man preaching the Word of God. He literally preached the building full under the authority of the Word that was being preached. And so there needs to be this renewed confidence in this day in the preaching of the Word of God. Tragically, sermons are being shortened and shortened and shortened. Sunday night services with preaching have been canceled. Wednesday night preaching in churches have been canceled. There is such little preaching of the Bible of the Word of God that is it, is it any question why churches are shriveling up because they are anemic because they do not sit under strong doctrinal Bible preaching that challenges the people to live the Christian life. And so as we see this at the end of verse 25, and this is the Word that was preached to you, do you know the first century church was a preaching church. Do you know when you study the book of Acts that one out of every four verses is a sermon? That the entire book of Acts is, it's really mistitled. It's not the Acts of the Apostles, it's the preaching of the Apostles. It's the sermons of the Apostles that ignited and torched the, the early believers until it shook the Roman Empire because they were preachers of the Word of God. Now, there are other secondary means of grace, but they are secondary. There is only one primary, and that is the preaching of the Word of God. So what should this say to you and me today? What, what does this require of us? Well, I think the first thing it requires of us is that the Word of God must be always increasing in our lives. None of us have arrived in our knowledge of the Bible. None of us have arrived in our living out what the Scripture requires of us. Uh, J.C. Ryle once said that it takes a whole Bible to produce a whole Christian, and we need the whole Bible, the full counsel of God, 
to be brought to bear upon our lives. And in order for you to grow as a Christian, you don't need less Bible, you need more Bible in your life to instill spiritual growth within you. So that's the first thing that this requires. You you need to be reading your Bible. You need to be studying your Bible. You need to be marking up your Bible. You need to be memorizing your Bible. You need to be meditating upon your Bible. You need to be putting the Bible into practice in your life. You need to be setting your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. The second thing that it requires of us is that you be in a church where there is a man who stands in the pulpit and who opens this book and who feeds your soul Sunday by Sunday by Sunday. And if you're not in a church like that, with a few rare exceptions, you need to get in a car and drive someplace to where, or get on a train, get on a subway, go to where the Word of God is, is being preached. You, you must have it. If you need to move, move to another city, take another job, be somewhere where you can sit under the preaching of the Word of God. That is the wisdom of God that is designed for your life. Pray for your pastor. Encourage your pastor. Tell him that, that you're praying for his preaching and his study in the Word of God. Affirm him and encourage him after he preaches on Sunday. And may God use that to, to see a new generation of preachers of the Word of God that are being raised up in this land. In the days of Amos, Amos said, or God said through Amos, behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when there will be a famine in the land, a famine not for drink or for food, but a famine for the hearing of the Word of the Lord. And it was the judgment of God upon ancient Israel because they refused the prophets God said, I will send you a place to a place where you'll never hear the Word of God again. And it was the judgment of God that they did not act upon the truth when the truth was brought to them. I wonder if America is under the judgment of God because we have refused the Word of God. I wonder if England is under the judgment of God because in, in decades past, we have hardened our hearts and refused to hear the Word of God. It, It is actually a judgment from God Himself as He abandons a people and turns them over to their own ways. How we must pray to God that God will restore voices who are crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, and it will be the instrument in the hands of God to bring about a thorough revival and reformation. It is always preceded by a renewed focus upon the preaching of the Word of God. It is authoritative, it is living, it is enduring, and it is intended by God to be preached. May the Lord's blessing be upon these verses. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I pray that You would raise up again in this city, in this country, in surrounding countries, in America, in Canada, in Australia, in Africa, in South America, in India, around the globe, in Europe, 
Lord, may You raise up Bible preachers, gospel preachers, and may Your church thrive as she sits under the proclamation of Your Word. May Your Word run swiftly from country to country, from city to city, and may You bring about a renewed church in these days. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.